So what does it turn a service into? And I shot back that mass customization automatically turns a service into an experience. And I went, wow, that sounds really good. Let me think about that. And if that's true, then experiences would be a distinct economic offering. And if that's true, then we'd have an economy based off of experiences. And that's where the experience economy really came about. And so just a gleam in my eye in in late 93, early 94, but now 27 uh, years later, you can see it all around us that we have shifted into an experience economy. Hi, this is Joe Pine, and you're listening to Gut Talks, double G-U-double-T. Hi, everyone. Welcome to season one of Gut Talks, double G-U-double-T, a podcast focusing on business and tech for good, experience design, and gut feelings. I'm Maria, designer, strategist, and venture builder, running two ventures, GUT, WGUWT, and Other Dots Foundation. I decided to launch GUT Talks as the pandemic hit with an ambition to educate, put some karma on the board, and feature entrepreneurs, industry leaders, and investors who deserve recognition and have inspiring stories to tell. Feel free to email me if you need me. Maria at God.com, W-G-U-W-T, or check the links in the show notes. Now let's get started. Our guest today is Joe Pine, a business advisor to Fortune 500 companies and startups, co-founder of Strategic Horizons, and author of several books, primarily The Experience Economy, a classic that has been selling for over 20 years with a recent relaunch. I met Joe via Twitter a couple of years ago as he found an article that I wrote about customer experience where his book was mentioned on startupbusiness.it. In this episode, we will dive into the meaning of the experience economy, of its evolution in challenging times as well. We will also dive into mindsets and business for good. I'd like to thank everyone for listening to Gut Talks. This episode is for anyone who runs any kind of organization, B2B, B2C, as the experience is all about people being customers, users, patients, students, citizens, employees, or you name it. And make sure you also read the book. Joe, it's a real pleasure to have you here, and I have tons of things I would like to discuss with you today. How are you? I'm doing well, Maria. Thank you. It's uh, wonderful to be with you, and I look forward to our discussion. Awesome. So I want to kick this off by asking you, who's Joe? (laughs) Who is Joe? Joe. Joe is not all that complicated. Joe is an antisocial introvert who works out of his own house. So the pandemic hasn't been all that different (laughs) for me, except that I don't get to travel around the world. And normally I love to travel around the world and help light bulbs go on with people and with companies to help them really create greater economic value through the business, through all the the ideas, the principles and frameworks that I write and talk about. I say that my um, purpose in business is basically to figure out what's going on in the world of business and develop frameworks to first describe what's happening and then prescribe what companies can do about it. And what made you do what you do today? Like, how did you identify this opportunity around experience 20 years ago? Well, there is an evolution uh, related between why am I doing what I do and experiences, but I started out working at uh, IBM and there had various technical jobs in management strategy and so forth. And, and when in strategy, I read a book by Stan Davis called Future Perfect, which is what I read. It was like the heavens opened up and the angels sang because it explained everything that I was seeing going on at IBM. And in particular, Stan coined the term mass customization. 
and you know where you efficiently serve customers uniquely, give everybody exactly what they want, but at a price they're willing to pay. And so I got that into our plans and strategies at, at IBM, and then IBM sent me to MIT for a year to get my master's degree in the management of technology. And I found out I had to do a thesis, so I said, well, I would do a thesis I can turn into a book. Right? That was my goal. And I decided very quickly that mass customization was the topic. And so that's exactly what I did. I, I outlined a book. I got done, you know, like 40% of it as my thesis. And then when I got out, I found a place in IBM that would give me time to be able to write it and published it in late 1992 with Harvard Business School Press. And then actually left IBM about seven, eight months later, as it turned out, not that I wanted to, but they gave my wife and I both six months salary to leave. And I said, well, let me see if I can make it on my own. And I very quickly after that discovered the experience economy by the fact that mass customizing a good, a physical good, automatically turns it into a service. And I was asked, well, what does it turn a service into? And I shot back that mass customization automatically turns a service into an experience. And I went, wow, that sounds really good. Let me think about that. And if that's true, then experiences would be a distinct economic offering. And if that's true, then we'd have an economy based off of experiences. And that's where the experience economy really came about. And so just a gleam in my eye in, in late 93, early 94, but now 27 uh, years later, you can see it all around us that we have shifted into an experience economy. We have for sure. And I'm going to get back to that in a while. But I want to ask you, when you got started with this whole customer experience reality and experience economy reality, and that was kind of new back then because you put it into words and then into practice as well. So are there any specific moments you recall where you kind of encountered resistance in the work you were trying to deliver? where it would be like, what is he all about? What is he trying to do? What is he trying to say here? Well, I got a lot of resistance, both on the experience economy and on mass customization. That that too was sort of, was, I mean, it was considered an oxymoron, right? That you can't can you have both mass, mass production and individual yeah. customization. So there's a lot of pushback on that. And that's where the key is to develop frameworks that make it clear why this is possible and examples about here's where companies are doing it or at least leading the way. And then that was the same with the experience economy. I used to have to argue with people that it was going on and show some economic statistics and show a, a flow of companies that are doing this panoply of pioneers of the experience economy, going back, of course, to Walt Disney and, and Disneyland in 1955. And I no longer have to do that, right? I no longer have to argue with people. I almost just have to say it and people get it, you know, just like I'll do the progression of economic value in coffee and people go, okay, yes, I see that, you know, because it is all around us. It's in the air. One of the key factors, even for those people who got it, one of the other things that they tended to push back on was where we said, you know, way back and started in 1998, that if you stage experiences, then you really should be charging admission that charging for time and admission fee or a membership fee is a key way that you really economically get into the experience business because you are what you charge for. And we got a lot of pushback on that when we said that in the future, retailers and restaurateurs and manufacturers would be charging admission of these experiences. And now, of course, you see that happening all over the place as well. Not as much maybe as I, I would still, as will happen, as I would anticipate happening. But now sort of like every industry, you can look at companies that are charging for the time that people spend. And so eventually the actuality catches up with what you can see and people get it. 
Yeah, I think you had to explain a bit more before, but it's a question of mindsets. And I want to ask you, based on what's happening in the world, right? We used to take elevators together. We used to meet and have a chat in the elevator. Then came the smartphone. We stopped even looking at each other and saying hello. We wouldn't be lucky if someone said hello to us or if we would say hello to someone. And then came the pandemic. And now we don't even take the elevator together. And experience is all about people and people have emotions and needs and preferences and there are habits and mindsets. So how do you think that some moments and events can trigger change of behavior at a personal and an organizational level today with what's happening? So experiences are about memorable events, right? It's basically a way to define it as memorable events. And yeah, because there's a sense of the word that we're always experiencing things all the time, as long as we're conscious, and that's true. But unless they get inside of us and engage us enough to create a memory about them, then it becomes a true distinctive experience. So being in the elevator and, and that sort of thing may not rise to that level. But it also means that there is sort of a bifurcation, that there are times when we simply want the plain old vanilla service that we want to get in and out as quickly as possible. In fact, people want goods and services to be commoditized, to be bought at the cheapest possible price and the greatest possible convenience so they can spend their hard-earned time and their hard-earned money on the experiences that they value. And so, yeah, if I can save my time through something that maybe they wanted to be an experience, but that's not what I'm looking for. I just want to get in and out. And then I'll spend that time later, save it for the experiences that we want. And we can also invest our time. You know, I talk about services basically are time well saved, right? Nice, easy, convenient, save my time. That's why the CX moment really isn't about X. It isn't about experiences. It's about good service. It's nice, easy, convenient. Experiences are about time well spent. They actually value the time that I'm spending with the company. And therefore, that creates that memory. But there's another level also that gets into what you're saying, Maria, which is time well invested, where we invest these experiences that they compound together. We get dividends that pay now and into the future because they actually do change our behavior, that they help us achieve our aspirations, that they are transformative experiences. And we call that in the book transformations, you know, as a fifth and final economic offering that we use experiences as the raw material to guide people to change to help them again achieve, achieve their aspirations. And we only ever change through the experiences that we have. And just like experiences, you know, one of the things we said in the original Harvard Business Review back in 1998 was that the history of economic progress is charging a fee for what once was free. You know, in other words, we used to make our own clothes and our own dinner. We used to grow our own chickens and our crops and everything. We don't do that anymore. We now buy them from other people who can do it better than we can do it ourselves. Same with services. We used to change our own oil in our car. We used to clean our own clothes, make our dinners. Now we increasingly pay other people to do those things. And the same with experiences. We used to be responsible for our own experiences. And, you know, inside of a company, as an employee, as an organization, as well as as consumers, but now increasingly we pay others to stage those experiences for us because guess what? They can do it better. And now it's the same with transformations. You know, transformation should be something that we're responsible for ourselves. It's why there's a whole category of self-help, right? Here's how to help yourself. But guess what? Helping ourselves is hard. <laughs> you know, we're not good at it. And so we need other people. We need coaches. We need consultants. We need companies of all stripes to help us to be able to achieve our aspirations and basically fundamentally change along the lines that we want. You're touching on a point here, which is kind of the mindset of a startup as well, in a certain sense, because 
they're more used to outsourcing and doing different things and collaborating with others rather than maybe the corporate world where it would be like, I can do it all in that sense as well. Yeah, though it amazes me how many corporations pay consultants, you know, <laughs> millions of dollars for projects, mostly because they don't have the manpower. Now, part of it is they don't have the knowledge and these have, they've done it before and that's a good thing. But often it's simply because they don't have the manpower to do it. And so they pay somebody else to help them along. But if it comes under their brand, it depends as well on how they sell it, because it can be like end-to-end or 360 mm-hmm. or whatever, but kind of in the pitch. But one thing you mentioned, and you were talking about services, and it's something I want to jump into right now quickly. I did a master's in service design, but when I went working in a corporation, it was all about customer experience, basically. I mean, which is a buzzword as well, right? Today, digital transformation, customer experience, but they're all together, but it's it's beyond that. How are you seeing the progression of the term, but also the thin line between services and the design of services and customer experience? Yeah. So I think when most people use the term customer experience, they mean service. <laughs> they, you know, it's good services, great services, high quality service, but it's still service because it is nice and easy and convenient. Convenient mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. the antithesis of a memorable experience. So there is a bright line. I mean, there, there is a gray area, yes, but I think there's still a big line between service and experience, between customer experience and true distinctive experiences. And one aspect is around time. That again, the time well saved versus the time well spent. Experience design is about the design of time. It's the design of the time your customers spend with you. That's what you're doing. That's why you need dramatic structure. It needs to rise up to a climax and come back down again. And often that climax, guess what? Climaxes happen because they're earned through trials and tribulations and overcoming crises. Well, service design tries to eliminate all the trials and the tribulations, the crises. They, they want very flat dramatic structure. They want things to go very easy. Again, nice, easy, and convenient. And so you never rise to the level of an earned climax. And that means it's not going to be memorable, right? They try and pull the memorable things out of it. The other big distinction between service design and true experience design is what versus how. And services are about the what. You design the what, the functionality, the functional things that people have to do. If you're designing the service of a retail store, right, you have to design how you merchandise, how you place clothes or books or whatever it might be on racks, how you straighten them up, how you replenish them, how you check people out, how you do inventory management and all of that. All of that is what? Experiences are about the how. They're about how you do each of those things. And when you design intentionally, right, what that how is, then you can turn any mundane service interaction into an engaging encounter. Yeah, I'm not going to ask you to define what it is because, you know, it's all about language. I guess when you talk to different customers, you end up talking to them in their own language to see what you mean. So, and I think through the conversation, this will come across for people who might not be really focused on experiences. But as you kind of alluded to, companies do compete for customers' attention because it's part of this time and this moment. So customers want something and it's like, I want it and I want it now basically. And they want something memorable at the same time. And if you think about the fashion industry, for example, as a prime example, and what we define or defined as luxury is it's not the products by themselves or the goods that you buy, but it's the convenience, which is the antidote you were talking about as well. But we saw that in fast fashion earlier, 
And the luxurious brands, or if you're on the couture brands, for instance, they started catching up after. So how do you perceive the shift, if you want, on this competitive advantage in that case? That really relates to thinking about mass customization, because what the fast fashion did is they brought the production of the goods, you know, that much closer to the customer. But they still didn't go far enough. And big brands, the couture brands, are reducing their cycle times as well. But the problem is what you need to get down is to this individual living, breathing person. And you need to produce just for them. You need to produce on demand for them. And that's what mass customization enables is to you know, efficiently, with high volume, with low cost, produce exactly what people want, getting rid of all your finished goods inventory, right? And, and in apparel in particular, you know, over 30%, it could be as much as 50% or more of apparel items that are produced are never bought by anybody, right? The amount of yes, economic yes. waste, the waste of the earth's resources is like horrific because they insist on designing it way in advance, producing it in advance, and then shoving it out the door through all of their retail outlets, whether that's in malls or online. Instead, they need to flip that model and start with the customer. Who is this customer? What do they want? What's their size? What's their style? What's their fashion? What's their color preferences? And then produce on demand for them. Some things can be done immediately in a store, like you know, eyeglasses have been done that way for decades now, where they brought the factory to the store. Others may take a, a few days, others a week or two. But it all can be done. It requires a word you used earlier. It's one of my favorite words in the world is mindset change, right? It's the mindset that it takes to be able to do that. And then also, again, you can provide a much better experience because you're working with each customer individually to design and then make and then deliver exactly what they want. Ad break. No, not an ad. But as you may have noticed, this show has no sponsors, but you can still support Gut Talks by leaving five stars or a comment on your podcast player and like, share and follow the social media channels of Gut, W-G-U-T-T. All links are in the show notes. Now let's get going. You touched on something interesting, and I'm going to be paraphrasing here because I can't remember exactly. But during the pandemic, I read an article by Giorgio Armani where he was saying, actually, he was the first one because in Milan, the pandemic hit and everything shut down straight away in February and during Fashion Week. So he was the first one to say, we're not doing the fashion shows anymore. We're just stopping everything right now. And then over time, he started releasing articles or the press was writing that he was saying that the fashion and the outfits they design are, yes, timeless, but they're not made to be timeless in that sense, all sold in that way. And he wants to have his products. He doesn't want people to be buying constantly over time and so on, but just use them because there was this, if you want huge awareness in the world around sustainability and everything that's happening, but also the support we saw given by large brands as well, so quickly transforming their manufacturing outlets and everything during the pandemic. Now, I haven't followed up to see if this is still the case, but it was interesting to read the shift of mindset in that sense to see that, okay, they're starting to think differently. It's not only the investors and the VCs and hedge funds that are trying to think differently, but it is also this awareness in this area. And I wanted to mention it here because it's just related to what you were saying. But since we're talking about fashion, I'm curious to know your take on advertising these days in this day and age, because, you know, Clubhouse and Spotify and Netflix, we're not going by screen and screen and sound and sound, but it's like the smartphone replaces everything. But a glass of wine is also the competitor to something in another industry. So where are we heading to? 
that's where the subtitle to the re-release of Experience Economy last year was competing for customer time, attention, and money. You know, Reed Hastings, the founder of Netflix, says their main competitor is sleep. So you're competing against every other company in the world for the time, the attention, and the money of individual consumers or individual business people. And so you need to recognize the basic principle of the experience economy, that the experience is the marketing, that the best way to generate demand, which is what advertising tries to do, is to generate demand for your offering, whether it's a commodity, a good, a service, experience, or even a transformation, is with an experience so engaging the customers can't help but pay attention, spend their time with you, and then buy your offering as a result. I mean, that's what Fashion Week is. It was the one place where Giorgio Armani could really create an amazing experience not directly for consumers, but vicariously for consumers who are watching it on TV or looking at it on the internet or reading about it in the papers, but for the fashion industry. And so they recognize that basic principle. They don't bring it to the stores. The stores are just merchandising like most other retail stores. You know, you particularly after this pandemic, you have to give reasons for a shopper to come into your store. Otherwise, they'll just buy on the internet, right? Or they'll buy contactless delivery. And that reason has to be the experience that they have in there and let that drive your demand generation. So I'm always telling companies to shift your advertising budget into experiences. Another big factor, one of the other books we wrote is called Authenticity, What Consumers Really Want. And one of the things we say in there, chapter eight is the marketing chapter. And we say how advertising is a phoniness generating machine where advertisers and their their marketing agencies can't help but exaggerate what it is about their offerings, put them in the best possible light and really create a phony image of what they are. Instead, they need to, and and then the best way to do it is to create places where people can experience who you are, right? Then there can be no disconnect between what you say about yourself and what people experience because they become one and the same place. So for both for demand generation reasons, where it's easy to show that experiences will generate much more demand, much more effectively than advertising, and for the fact that it allows you to be perceived as authentic by your current and potential customers, you know, that's the way to go. One of my favorite words as well is authenticity, because the brands that they do meaningful work, at least they stand out in that sense, because customers know. I mean, I remember when I went to buy my first car a long time ago, the sales guy told me, yeah, there's a gray one, whatever. And then he went to check. He said, no, we only have a yellow one, but the yellow one is beautiful. Look at it. It's a great one. I'm like, are you taking the piss? You know, sorry for the word, but I was like, no, you know, and I didn't buy this brand. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to spend three other months to decide which car I'm going to get, but I'm not buying from there. And now if we think about the internet and, and social media, it makes a massive difference. And this is how I got a plane ticket reimbursed because I asked someone who had many followers here to retweet my tweet because they wouldn't pick up the phone. And it happens after three days. I spent six months trying, but after three days of a tweet, they reimbursed my ticket. I want to also touch on something here. You were talking about experiences and, you know, this is the main topic anyway, but because I work with uh, different accelerators and incubators, and sometimes they organize hackathons, but also I work with students and they're all about experience, but also sustainability in that sense and trying to combine both even if it's in-store and so on, as you were saying. But you also advise, I mean, you mainly advise Fortune 500 companies, but work also with startups. So what are the key differences you've seen between large and small organizations? Well, one is, back to the word mindset, it's much easier for a small organization to change its mindset, to embrace these, and then to effect change than it is for a large organization. 
Well, once large organizations get it, then they can do tremendous things and make a big difference. I was talking at a clubhouse session yesterday, and one talked about, you know, hey, you know, 95% of the companies out there are small companies, and you know, all the attention is paid to the 4 or 5% that are big companies. And a lot of these small companies don't aspire to become big. And I think that's perfectly fine. You don't need to, but for those that do, then you need to figure out how to grow the business in a way that, that reaches a lot of people and creates it. When you talk about sustainability, one of the big differences too is that experiences are, one, mass customization is much more sustainable because you're, you're only producing on demand. You're not wasting all these resources to do things. So that factor really makes it more sustainable. Plus the fact that the more it's customized to you, the more you're going to use it. You're going to benefit it, less likely to throw it away and, and, and all that sort of stuff. And research has shown that. But experiences also, I mean, you... Experiences generally require place. I mean, yes, it can be a virtual place, which could be highly sustainable because you're not, you know, you are using energy, uh, so to speak, but there's not a lot of physical things that are going into it. But even in physical places, you create it and then you have all these people and go through and, and have this experience and use digital technology to even customize those to the individual. So it's often better because you're not having to produce all of these things all over again all the time for it. And you mentioned mass customization as well. And you talk a lot about staging and theater. And yep. this is something in service design that is quite common as well. And at Strategic Horizons, you deliver trainings and programs. Is it something you do combining play and improvisation to engage your participants to kind of get a feel or prototype a certain experience then be scaled and executed? Yeah, I mean, that's a big part of it. We have frameworks that bring all of that into and thinking about it. We have a experience economy expert certification course that we deliver and, and to help people embrace these frameworks and use them in their companies or with their clients. We have a on-stage offering for frontline video training. And there we teach people, uh, not improvisation per se, but how to be on stage, what the notion of theater is, how to be personal with your customers in whatever industry that you're in. And generally, we don't go to that level with companies because we're, you know, we're not a McKinsey. We're a three-person company. We like it that way. We're one of those companies that decide to be small. Sorry. You know, we don't want to, to grow. But we want our ideas to be out there. We partner with any company, you know, any consulting company that, uh, that wants to. Okay. At this moment, actually. <laughs> Do you trust your gut when creating or staging an experience and to test your assumptions as well in general? I like the old uh, Russian proverb that Ronald Reagan used, which is trust but verify. So yes, I do trust my gut. I often will come up with an idea out of my head and I just go, wow, that is a great idea. This is what you should do. Right? But you then need to verify, in fact, that, that that's true. And part of it is, I fully believe that at least in terms of my gut, you know, where it comes from, is in all of the pattern recognition that I've been doing for decades on what companies are doing and seeing what's going on. What I always tell companies to do is don't practice best practices, which is copying somebody else, but instead practice best principles, which is understanding what is the principle that this company is applying to its business, then extract out that principle and apply it to your business. And that will generate ideas. And so, and I do that like automatically. I don't even have to think about the principle. I, it's, they're all in the back of my head. 
But when I analyze where that idea come from, I'll go, oh, it came from that company doing this and that situation. And therefore I realized that this company could do that. And so the, my gut is well-informed. Let me put it that way. I believe my gut is well-informed, but you still have to verify and validate and pilot and prototype. It's a common question I always ask on the podcast to see, and I get kind of different answers, but I think the agreement here is it comes from a series of experiences and then you try to connect the dots and so on. I want to tap into something here because in, I think, episode five with Luis Arnal, who's the global co-lead at Fjord, we both come from emerging countries. He comes from Mexico and come from Lebanon. So we discussed some commonalities and so on. And talking about countries with means and countries without means and where we're heading to, how are organizations tackling the experience economy and executing on their promise in emerging countries, but also developed countries? Your experiences are worldwide. They're all over the place. Every country, Mm -hmm. you know, tourism is the number one experience industry in the world. And every country almost, I think, except North Korea, perhaps, (laughs) except for (laughs) you Chinese, have a bustling tourism industry. And that's one of the places to see it. And one of the ways that undeveloped countries can really grow is by understanding the benefits of tourism and getting focus on things. And also then if you have tourists, guess what? They want to take home things that remind them of the experience of memorabilia, and that can help develop your manufacturing. And then a lot of the tourists are going to be based off of the basic services they have, and that can help develop your services. So I think that's a great way to go in thinking about developing countries. But any individual company in there, one of the things that they can do is that they have the benefit of looking at all these companies around the world and what they've done. That's where maybe you do just copy them for, 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 for your situation and create a version of it that you're too small for them to even think about. So, you know, I'm thinking of like even the Ubers and Amazons and so forth. Amazon's not in every country in the world, but there sure ought to be an Amazon-like company in every country in the world. There ought to be an Airbnb-like company in every country in the world and so forth that you can use these sort of lighthouse examples to shine the way into what you should be doing. And the other part to it is... Obviously, one of the main topics as well of this podcast is business and tech for good. So how does the experience economy encompass purpose and real impact? You know, talking about society, environment, employee experience, diversity, and all of that. I've got a framework, actually, that talks about purpose. And as it relates, actually, to this notion you talked about where we we say that work is theater, that it's really about intentionality, that at the lowest level, I view this as concentric circles, at the lowest level is your acting intention. It's the how versus the what. It's what I'm trying to get across right at this moment in what I am doing and how I'm doing that. Then above that is the theme of the experience. And that's your intention and what you want this experience to do for people, to do within people, how they experience it. And every experience needs a theme. You know, that people often mistakenly think it's got to be like a fantasy, like a Disney theme park, or it's got to be in your face, like a, a theme restaurant, but simply the organizing principle of the experience. It's your intentionality for that experience. At the next higher level, you have your strategic intention about what change you're trying to make in the world right now over that medium term uh, horizon and how that then influences the experiences and the acting that's done. But right above that is meaningful purpose, right? That's a key level of intentionality. You need to have a meaningful purpose that aligns with everybody does and is your raison d'etre, your reason for existence in the world beyond making a buck. No company should have money as the purpose of the company, making money, but rather it's the measure of how well you fulfill your purpose of what you do. And above that, in fact, is your worldview, right? Your purpose exists within a worldview of the company. And 
you see increasingly that that becomes very important. When we talk about authenticity, we talked about it as a new consumer sensibility that relates directly to experiences. Well, with transformations, meaning, I think, is becoming the new consumer sensibility that we buy from companies based on whether the offerings they provide and they give our life's meanings and the purpose of the company aligns with our own purpose as individuals, even if we've never articulated that, right? It's just something that we feel. Well, that gets back to gut, right? And yes. in our gut, we say that this is what I'm about. This is who I am. And this is what gives my life meaning. And so increasingly, we need to think about how we do that with our customers and create not just pleasurable experience, enjoyable experiences, but meaningful experiences and even transformative experiences. I like that on the transformative side. And actually, you're touching on something I wanted to jump on. So let's talk about it. As you said, people are happier with experiential purchases, right? Not with... I didn't uh, say that, but research shows that. <laughs> yes, yes. It's research. Yes, absolutely. On that one, it's an article I read, actually, that says people are happier with experiential purchases. You don't agree with that? Or do no, you? no, I do agree with that. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, mean, I think the research... I just, I didn't say it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Tom Gilovich, in particular from Cornell University, is the one that's done a series of studies about how making experiential purchases makes us happier than buying things. Yeah, even if it's just a moment, basically. Happiness isn't as important as meaning. For sure. No, no, right? no Meaning is more important than being happy as a sort of a momentary transitory thing. Absolutely. It's just like being nice or something like that. And then it ends here. So you talked about the measurement. So how can you measure the impact of an experience and make improvements based on data? The measurement of experiences is still more art than science, but they're increasingly mm -hmm. progress being made. You know, there's, I'm working with a famous neuroscientist, Paul Zak, who can measure the level of engagement. He calls it immersion, but the level of engagement that you have with a customer with, you know, with Fitbit-like devices, where you can compare what's going on with the blood flow through the arm with what happens in your brain and recognize that, hey, I'm really immersed in this and I'm engaged with it. And so that is increasingly valuable way to be able to measure level experience, even draw sort of the dramatic structure of the experience as it goes up and down throughout. There are other companies like True Rating that measures in the moment at retail based off of the, you know, the purchase terminal, you know, asking one question about what your experience during that session that really allows people to have for the first time, often real-time feedback as opposed to, okay, we're going to measure at some point later with a, you know, a small subset of our customers who actually respond. And often those are the people at the endpoints, really happy, really mad, and not as many people uh, in between. And there are many others, you know, uh, Two Days Mood in the Netherlands measures employee experience and can show you how, also in the moment, like, you know, like right now, what do you feel about this? And, and can correlate that to what is being done, you know, how it affects the experience that your customers are creating. Another Netherlands company, Do North Consulting, has done an amazing job at affecting the customer experience by affecting the employee experience and measuring how that is. And then they, again, can show what a difference it makes with the end experience with customers is about how you affect and interact with your employees. So there's more and more companies that are figuring out how to do this. Yeah, you're making me think of this American company where the CEO actually decided to take a lower salary and give a much higher salary to all the employees and their productivity and their level of satisfaction as well. And the growth of the company was massive after that. So he completely shifted the way he looks at his business and growth. I remember the example. I can't remember it. I know, and I know it's several years old too. So it'd be interesting to see yeah. what has happened 
in that intervening time. And that's not the only way you can affect these things, but that is, it's a very stark way and really gets people's attention about how you mean it. Yeah, it's a CEO with long hair, but I can't remember his right. name, so I probably know him. So you touched, though, on something here because you're talking about, you mentioned Fitbit, you know, wearables in the health tech sector. And there are some companies like Lemonade, like being more technically advanced, let's put it that way, because they're using data to boost experiences, but that are linked to health or health improvements. And they're using this to reduce premiums, for instance. So engagement and profit, but health at the same time. And this is where I want to head to in this question, because this insurance example just was at the top of my mind when you mentioned wearables, but the application of technology in new domains has been accelerated and created different forms of experiences. And sometimes they're linked to the sustainable development goals. And today we're hearing or we're going to be hearing even more about vertical farming that's getting more deployed, like in-farm, for example. So do you think this is going to be pushed from an organization's point of view and action? Because at the moment, investor, it's a big topic when it comes to investors and hedge funds and so on, sustainability and improvements and stuff like that. Do you think this is going to be the way merging experiences and technologies in that sense? I don't know that it's the way. It's certainly a way and a, and a very effective way, because as you say, so many more people are thinking about sustainability and what it means and looking for things. It's part of that authenticity and that meaning that aligns with their personal values and what they're looking for. So based off of worldview segmentation, they're going to tend to buy from companies that not only give them what they want, but do it in a way that aligns with their values. Okay. Because the thing is with sustainability, and I did some other podcasts just asking, is it a buzzword or is it being really applied? And, and there's a thin line around this and goes back to authenticity again and the why, why you're doing it and the real purpose behind it. I want to take a step back here and ask you, what's your absolute go-to example when you talk about the experience economy? The one that I would point to, well, one, you got to say Starbucks, right? That took a coffee bean worth two or three yeah. cents and turned it through goods and services into a coffee drinking experience worth three, four, five US dollars. But the one I talk about most, I mean, everybody gets that around the world, is actually Carnival Corporation. Carnival Corporation, before the pandemic, obviously, but they're continuing to work on this and build it and then we'll come out with even more and greater things once they can start ocean cruises again. But they're one that wanted to get away from just having a mass experience where everybody has basically the same experience. They wanted to also get out of having to, to go through the arms race that's come out in cruise where you have to every other year or so come out with a new billion dollar ship that's bigger and better and more experiential and a spectacle in and of itself with, you know, with roller coasters that go over the ocean and so on. And the problem is then it makes all of your older ships look very plain and vanilla and not very exciting. So they wanted to elevate the experience on all of them. So they did it through technology, in particular, IoT technology. They created the Ocean Medallion, which is an IoT device, the you know, size of a large coin here. And they give them for free to every guest that comes on their cruise ship, starting with the Princess Cruise Line and then expanding beyond that. And then this allows them to mass customize the experience to that individual that they, you know, the first of all, they allow you to come on board without ever having to show your passport because they know who you are. They got your passport information in advance. Your room will automatically unlock for you when you touch the door because they know it's you. 
They'll greet you by name. You can pay for anything in any of the stores or restaurants with it. But everything they do, they learn about what you like to experience. They learn about what you like to do on your cruise, what your preferences are, so that every interaction with them can allow you to create a more and more customized experience for you, your family, or whatever group that you are with. They create personal experience invitations to invite you to things they think you would like. They measure them, not just your ratings, but like how much time do you spend it? Figuring if you spend less time than average, probably wasn't as time well spent as most people think. If you spent more time, you valued that time more, and therefore you're going to like experiences like that more. And so they create a mass customized itinerary that allows you to really see exactly what you're doing, be able to change it around, go in, in as much depth as you want so that you have that control over that entire end-to-end -end experience from moment of embarkation to disembarkation. They can even remember things like when you're on the pool deck with your kids, your favorite drink is an iced tea with no lemon. But when you're in the bar with your buddies, it's a mojito. And when you're in the restaurant with your spouse, it's a glass of Shiraz. Right. So understand the digital context of what I am doing right now means that you're going to want different things. You're not this monolithic you know, market that we think is out there. You're an individual living, breathing customer with different markets within you. And so it's the first company really to mass customize everything about an experience in a way that just makes an amazing difference with the time that people have. I think it's, they kind of set the trend for the cruise ship industry, if you want in that way, because I worked on a project like that when I was in consulting. But it would be interesting to know how many customers return as well, but also they can sell their engine to others beyond the cruise ship yes, industry. Yes, they could, yeah. And every time they return, it's going to learn more. I'll yeah. mention one more example since you're in Milan. Mm -hmm. The best retail format in the world, Italy. Italy. Italy is the best retail format in the world. It's an amazing experience. Into the store in Milan, that is an old theater that they took over. That's just amazingly vibrant place. And that's the thing about Italy. It's the most vibrant experiences, retail experience that you'll have anywhere in the world. And one of the things I love is they sell all five economic offerings. They sell the produce and the grains and everything for you to make Italian food out of. They sell the packaged goods made out of those, including the noodles and pasta and, and whatnot. They sell the appliances that you would use to be able to cook this in your own home. They have the normal retail merchandising uh, services of bringing all of this there and selling it to you in the store. But then they have a wonderful experiences like the Lavazza Cafe that they have in each store, as well as the restaurants. You know, it's just this amazing amalgamation of it all. But then they also have an admission feed cooking school. And in that cooking school, you can learn to become an Italian chef. You go to enough classes and you buy their appliances and you use all everything they have for sale. Then you can become, right, transform into a premier Italian chef. The only thing and the only issue I have with Italy is that I don't drink coffee. <laughs> This is why. I, <laughs> I don't either. You know, I, I hate coffee. I talk about, I, you know, I talk about Starbucks around the world, right? Yeah. I got my Starbucks, but this is a chai. Right. So it's a tea. So I love tea and that's what I'll drink uh, when I have it. But I don't drink coffee either. So I completely understand that. It's nice to find people around the world who will also get what I talk about, because usually it's like, what? You live in Italy as well, you know. And I want to ask you about awful experiences as well in that sense. Awful? Yeah. So I personally, in the last six months, don't ask me how many really bad experiences I've experienced, actually. And to be very honest with you, it was a trigger for me to start sending emails and start recording the podcast. Just so you know, I was like, no, this can't be because, <laughs> you know, sometimes it's so easy, really, to make things smooth and not create frustrations 
that are unnecessary. And I'm going to start with this. So let's forget a bit about the pandemic in that sense. But in 2010, there was a volcano in Iceland and all the planes were grounded. And I was... I remember it well. Yeah, I got stuck. So I had to find a train. So I'm not going to go through all the details, but instead of getting to Paris in six hours, it took me about 16 hours just to get like the whole, that's only on the train, by the way. So <laughs> besides the before and after and like car rental companies, shared offices, whatever it may be. And sometimes like the levels of frustration to customers that they can create can be massive. And how do we design? And, and I did this once in a talk I had. It's like how to design for the worst case scenario or uncertainty. So how can we tackle this issue? Because things can happen. And now we have the pandemic, you know, on top of everything. Right. So how can organizations work on that and have this as a priority? Because things can happen and we never know what can happen and when. Well, you know, first of all, one of the things I've long said is the easiest way to turn a service into an experience is to provide poor service because then your customers remember it, right? And you remember these things from 11 years ago. Yeah, I can so, write a book. So, I can do that. So, <laughs> so one of the things is to, is to recognize that not everything goes along perfectly. No matter how much we design that into it, how much we train our people, there will be things that'll happen, including worldwide pandemics and volcanoes that affect the world, but even, but more often, obviously, much more minor things like the power goes out or somebody calls in sick for work, you don't have enough people in that. And you need to uh, design for that as well. I can still remember a workshop I did over 20 years ago with uh, one of the major airline companies in the US that shall remain nameless. And I was talking to them about Rich Carlton. Right. And Ritz Carlton is a hotel company that they remember your preferences they are willing to do um, whatever it takes to make you have a great experience. Every person gets a budget of over a thousand dollars. I think it is every day to be able to spend money on what it takes to recover from any service problem that they might have and to ensure that a guest and a family will have have a great experience. And I was talking about them and one of the executives at this airline company said, well, yeah, but if you put Ritz-Carlton people behind our counters, they provide lousy service too. <laughs> and I said, yes, exactly they would. What does that tell you? It's your systems. Your systems that are so inflexible that you don't allow your people to shine. Whereas Ritz-Carlton has systems of flexibility built into them that can handle things that inevitably go wrong. And I, I remember one of the other things I asked at that is about, they talked about regular and irregular operations. Right. Regular operations when everything goes fine. Irregular operations are when there's a big storm somewhere or some other effect that happens and begins to propagate through the system. They said, that's what we have trouble with managing those. And I said, well, how often do irregular operations happen? They said, you know, about every other day. That's not irregular. <laughs> that's regular operations. Design your system to be able to handle it because they're happening all the time. And I think they have gotten better in the last 20 years, but still just at the, the mindset of them, just like, I could not believe that this is how they thought about their business. And so every company needs to think about their business richly in a way that gives their people that, you know, they so often say our people are our most important assets, but then they say, oh, but you can't buy a stapler because we don't trust you to spend our money to buy a stapler in your office. I mean, come on. Let people be people, let them manage things, give them the opportunities to succeed. Following up on that, another quick one that I remembered, I was on an American airline as well. And the air hostess came and asked me, do you want like chicken or fish? I can't remember. 
And I said, yeah, fish. Oh, sorry, we, we don't have enough. But if there's anything left, we will let you know. So why are you asking me in the first right, place? Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? And uh, I was sitting in business, by the way. It's, it's not like in that case, on that flight. And like on top of it, I paid double at least. You ask me and you tell me no. So that, that's right, one of the right. things. So I don't know if there's um, anything you would like to add that we didn't talk about? No, I mean, I think we've covered a wide perspective of things. I would say, so i just leave it with, one of the things that I like to ask is really understand what business are you really in? And if you understand that you're not just in the goods or services business, that you're in the experience business, or perhaps you're, you're even in the transformation business, then you will design things differently, then you will do things differently, then you need to, you'll create a new mindset based off of that, recognizing still that they're all built on top of each other. You you can't have a great experience without great service as well, but it will enable you to think differently about your business, about what your customers want and allow you to succeed in an environment where goods and services are everywhere becoming commodities. Thank you so much. And where can we find you? By the way, everyone should read the book. I've got it here, but uh, where can we find you on Twitter? If anyone wants to reach out. Yeah, Twitter yeah. at Joe Pine, uh, LinkedIn, you can link in with me at Joe Pine as well. Our website is www.strategichorizons.com, strategichorizons with an S.com. And if you do get the book, then get the 2020 re-release or we have the new preview on competing for customer time, attention and money. Awesome episode with Joe Pine. We talked about his book, The Experience Economy, his experience in general, how he got started, and we deep dived into some case studies, the meaning of customer experience, what people look for, and much more. And one important thing as well that we discovered along the way is that we both don't drink coffee. Thanks for listening. You are listening to Gut Talks by Maria Matloub. To support the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and share it with anyone who could benefit from listening to these stories and experiences. To continue the conversation, join the Telegram channel. All links are in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.